Lord, may the words I speak be those you want spoken. May the words we hear be those you want heard. And may we live ever to your glory. Amen. I want to start with some call and response. I'm going to put some slides up here. And I want, I'm going to read the first part. And I want you to read the bolded part. Okay? God said, let there be light. And there was light. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. So God created every living thing that moves, and every winged bird according to its kind, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And it was so. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed to work it and keep it. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was not good. Now, God is omniscient and omnipotent. I don't think it was a surprise to the Lord that something was not good. We know from chapter 1 that God created humanity as male and female. The second chapter isn't a separate creation account, but a more detailed account. The Lord starts with the one man, and it was not good for him to be alone. He created people in such a way that none of us can do all that God planned for humanity alone. We need other people. Adam needed a partner. It is not good for man to be alone, but God had a plan. He finishes that verse with, I will make a helper fit for him. Before he implements that plan, though, there are several verses about the man, Adam in Hebrew, which becomes his proper name, naming the animals. Now the Lord God had formed out of the earth all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. 
animal after animal after animal. Birds, livestock, wild animals are all mentioned. This must have taken quite some time. And undoubtedly, Adam would have noticed that the animals came in pairs. And yet he was alone. There's none like him. And the naming of the animals gives Adam the opportunity to notice that he is unique. And he's at that point is ready to have a partner. We can imagine, perhaps, that he said to the Lord, why is there no one like me? And it is then that God implements his plan to create the woman. So let's go back and look at verse 18 for what kind of partner God plans to create. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, says the ESV. The NIV says a helper suitable for him. And the trusty King James says a helpmeet for him. Now I want to do a little bit of a Hebrew lesson here um, because the English equivalent isn't isn't adequate, and that's not unusual for translation. It's difficult sometimes to go to get nuances from one language to another. In the uh, Anuit language, which is the Alaskan indigenous language, they have 18 different words for snow. We have snow. <laughs> now, I know you can put adjectives in front of snow, wet snow, flaky snow. I don't know. I'm from Florida. But... Um, you know, get the idea. But it's, it's, we're not going to get the, all the nuances because we don't have that, we don't have that context. And that's kind of the same thing in Hebrew, going from Hebrew to, to English. So the Hebrew for the bolded English is transliterated azer kenegdo. Azer is the word the first two translate helper, and the King tra James translates helpmeet. So what kind of helper does God have in mind? In English, helper usually means an assistant or somebody with less authority or power. A teacher might have an assistant or a helper. An executive might have a helper or an assistant. If I ask for helpers um, at the seminary, it's everybody understands that I'm in charge and I, they're looking to, to me for direction, right? One of the ways we can tell to interpret scripture to see where else the word is used. Azer is used 19 other times in the Old Testament. 16 of the 19 times it's used of the Lord, of God. Psalm 33 says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Our help, our Azer. Psalm 121 says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. My help, my Azair. Azair tells us nothing about the relative status of the helper to the one being helped. Rather, it implies the strength of the one being helped is insufficient for the task at hand. Azair does not imply subordination of any kind. It also does not imply power of any kind. A helper does not serve under a leader in the Hebrew context, but beside that person. That's important to understand the passage. Konegdo is, is found nowhere else in the Old Testament, so it's a little bit harder to 
translate, and you can see that in three different translations there. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the um, Old Testament, about 200 BC, actually translates the word differently in verse 18 and verse 20. One place meaning corresponding to, and the other one having the same nature. A little bit harder to translate. Can mean any of those things. I like what professor and former president of Gordon-Conwell, Walt Kaiser, wrote in his book, Hard Sayings of the Old Testament, about what the phrase, Azair Konegdo, implies about um, the kind of helper God creates. He writes, God makes for the man, a woman, fully his equal and fully his match. So God creates man and woman in his image. He created them as partners who help one another because it is not good for man or woman to be alone. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And when he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now the word translated rib there is not translated rib anywhere else in scripture. The other 39 times it's used, it's translated side. God is making woman from Adam's side for her to be alongside him. Both men and women are made from the same stuff. Adam gets this right away. He spent an untold period of time naming the animals and seeing how different they were from him. He's unique, and he's, he's excited. He's delighted. He breaks into poetry. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. He recognizes their similarity. So we have male and female. From Genesis 1, we know they were both created by man in his image and likeness. They were both blessed by God, were spoken to and given commands to procreate, have dominion over the earth, and rule the animals together. There's no way that one human being could carry out all of that call on humanity. God created people to live in community. He created us to live for one another. Genesis 2 gives us a little bit more detail about the concept of work and the commands of God. Well, only man was created when he, those commands were originally given. We know from Genesis 3 that the woman was held to those commands, so we know that God must have given them to her as well. And while there are obviously differences between men and women, there are not differences in status and purpose in these early chapters. They're both created by man and by God in his image. They're both made from the same genetic material. They both have the same blessings and commands. They need each other to be able to serve the Lord and to keep his commands. They need each other to be able to serve the Lord. Humans were created in such a way that they need the help of others. We cannot fulfill our destiny except in mutual assistance. Perhaps because God exists in community in the Trinity, he also wants his creation to exist in community. We are created in the image of God, in the likeness of the Trinity. Now, it doesn't mean that we are physically like God, but we are alike in our ability to create or procreate, to be in community with one another, to have authority over parts of creation, there was no difference in the beginning, just as there's no difference in our standing before Christ. Paul writes, 
There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor there is male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So let's look at that editorial comment in verse 24 on marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This couldn't possibly refer to Adam and Eve, because we know they didn't have a physical father and mother, but the ideal of marriage in general, the divine intention of marriage, two people perfectly made for one another, equal in status and purpose, coming together as one in marriage. And of course, we know that's always the way it works out, right? God creates the perfect person for each of us. We come together, submitting to one another, sacrificially loving one another after a long, well-lived life. We all live happily ever after, right? Now, well, the divine intention of marriage might be that. We live after the fall and before the return of Christ. And this is just not reality. Many of us never marry or are divorced, or are widowed way too young, way too, way too early. Did you know that a third of the adults at Redeemer are not currently married? That's a bigger percentage than I would have guessed. Men and women, young and old, everybody in between. And of those who are married, I can assure you there are no perfect marriages. Marriage is hard. No one can meet your all of your needs and desires. It is not good for those for us to be alone, but that doesn't mean that we are all supposed to be married. Paul says in his letters to the Corinthians, to the unmarried and the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. If it is not good to be alone, and we are not all supposed to be married, and even for those of us who are, understanding that our entire community cannot be built around that one person. We need to look to one another for community. If you aren't attending the adult Sunday school class on Acts, it's excellent, and I invite you to start coming. Redeemer has a stellar adult education program. The book of Acts gives the four marks of the church in 242, Acts 242. The apostles' teaching, the common life of believers, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. The common life of believers is the antidote for it is not good to be alone. Now, I'm a strong advocate of being in small groups, any kind of small group. I hesitate to word, use the word small group because everybody has a different definition of that. But getting to know people and letting people get to know you in something smaller than this isn't really important. Now, these groups don't have to look any particular way. You might meet for prayer, or maybe just to eat, to study the Bible, maybe just to talk about your week, or for accountability, or to do ministry, or to listen what the Lord would have to say to you, for support or mentoring, maybe just to read a book together, for any number of things. Don't limit where the Lord can build community based on your definition of a small group. There's listening groups, there's Bible studies, senior luncheon, adult Sunday school, Wednesday night, join the altar guild or the greeters. Much of ministry here is done in groups. It's a great way to be together. 
the church not only should be in fellowship with one another, but we should be looking outward and looking for ways to reach those outside the church. It is not good for us to be alone, and it is especially not good for, those, for anyone to live without the Lord. Sharing our faith in Jesus should be part of how we live out our lives in community. It is not good that any of us should live in isolation. We are created to live life together as man and woman in marriage, in our families, in our friendships, in small groups, in our church communities, in our work, in ministry, in neighborhoods. It is not only not good for us individually to be alone, but it is not good for the world, for the church, to be inward focused. They need to know Jesus through the church. It's the community of marriage and the community of the church should reflect the community of the Trinity. We are created, after all, in the image of the three in one. It is not good to be alone, but God took care of that in creating people to need one another. We cannot live out God's calling unless we are in community, providing mutual assistance and following the Lord together. We might say we are supposed to be an azair for one another. Look around you. No one should be alone. God has called each of us to reach out. So go do it. Let us pray. Eternal God, grant that the bounds of our common humanity by which all your children are united one to another may be so transformed by your grace that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven, where, O oh Father, with your Son and Holy Spirit, you live and reign in perfect unity now and forever.